0: Well, this morning we'll continue in our study of 2 Corinthians. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to uh, turn with me there to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and I'll read the uh, first six verses. Uh, once again, that's 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 6. If you don't have your Bibles, I would encourage you to uh, bring them with you because every single week we're going to be in them. And uh, it's, it's helpful for you to have it in the, the palm of your hands and your lap so that you can see what we're saying up here is, is true. We're not just making this up. It's right there. And um, it's, it's helpful when you have it with you. Um, but for this morning, once again, Second Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. what Paul writes. Therefore, having this mercy, uh, this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Of Jesus Christ, to pray with me. And Father, we know that you are gracious to us and patient with us in our um, own shortcomings, in our own misunderstandings. And so, that I pray that our time together right now would bring uh, clarity through your Word, as we discover your very heartbeat and what you care about. Would your Spirit show us uh, where we are ignorant? in our ways, and help us to understand. By Jesus' authority, we pray all of these things to you. Amen. A few years ago, a movie uh, came out called The Greatest Showman, um, which tells the story of P.T. Barnum, who is the founder of our idea of the American circus. And in one particular scene, uh, Barnum comes across a man uh, named Mr. Bennett. He's a journalist. He's actually a critic at the local newspaper. And um, the journalist opened the conversation by saying, Tell me, Mr. Barnum, does it bother you that everything you are selling is fake? And Barnum replied, Do these smiles seem fake? It doesn't matter where they came from. The joy is real. And then he would go on to almost defend himself, saying, hyperbole isn't the worst crime. Men suffer from imagining too little than too much. At which Mr. Bennett says, the creed of a true fraud. It's a great movie. It's, it's actually one of my family's favorites. And uh, for the most part, it speaks favorably of P.T. Barnum. He's the hero in the story. But if we're honest with ourselves and, and we look at history, history actually tells a little bit of a different story. Uh, history seems to side with the critic, uh, the newspaper critic in the scene. Uh, because the historical Barnum built an entire entertainment empire based on cunning on trickery, on exaggeration, on hyperbole. And uh, if we're honest with ourselves, he, he, he's somewhat of a fraud as he built his wealth off of tampering with the truth, giving you a little bit, but withholding uh, some other knowledge, right? Um, th- this is the historical Barnum, if you will. He was very, very good at what he did, but he, he sold a lie, if you will. Uh, P.T. Barnum is a modern portrait of the type of person that Paul was dealing with here in first century Corinth. Uh, As I've mentioned in the past, there were these itinerant preachers that we've already spoken about at great length, but the key part to remember for this morning is that these traveling preachers were greatly skilled at selling a message, And they heavily relied on just the flashiness in their delivery, and they sought to create a dazzling show, a grand spectacle built around deceit. They would actually manipulate the environment and manipulate the conditions to their favor. They they, they manipulated the environment that they were in so that they weren't just sharing a message but creating an experience. And it's not much different than some ministry context today, where leaders say, let's create just this immersive moment and then capitalize on the credulity of the people that have come to experience it. You know, let's just make sure that we have just the right music and just the right sound. Adjust the right volume with just the right lighting, and let's make sure that the, the the decor of the building or the stage design is set at just the the right visual appeal. And oh, by the way, let's have the thermostat set at just just the right temperature because the spirit obviously can't work if it's too hot or too cold. Everything has to be just right. Also, that the people coming in don't hear a message, they have an experience. I'm afraid probably more times than not in events and programs in ministry contexts that are built around an experience, we may fool ourselves. We may fool ourselves into thinking that we're encountering the spirit of the living God. When in all reality, we are encountering a human fabrication. What we perceive as successful ministry or effective ministry Uh, as one writer put it, is sometimes no more than just exceptional acting. Uh, What we see in this regard today is not much different than what was happening in the first century church in Corinth with these traveling speakers. And as is the case today, it was easy for the first century speaker to kind of manipulate and con because it's what the listeners desired. The church in Corinth enjoyed seeing the show. They craved the spectacle. And so these speakers would take advantage of the opportunity at hand, right? All all in an attempt to gain a huge following, to earn an audience, to earn a reputation, to push and to sell their brand. If they were around in our culture today once more, they they would be what has been known as the Instagram followers. They, They are the ones, the influence, the Instagram influencers, excuse me, that get on camera And they say, like my recent, like my post, share my story, follow me on TikTok, watch me sing, watch me dance, watch me make you laugh. These traveling preachers in Paul's day would do whatever they could to earn a platform pointing to themselves based on their own merit and based on their own wisdom and witty nature. And it was also inward focused. It all pointed to the self. They shamelessly promoted themselves. And worst of all, they did it under the guise of ministry. They they would say, this is what true ministry looks like. This is what effective ministry looks like. Look at all my followers. We're busting down the doors. So we must be doing something, right? Because look at all the people that have come to listen to me speak. This is what they would say is successful ministry. And they would claim that Paul's ministry isn't true ministry because look how dull his ministry is. Look how much it lacks the flair. So, so Paul can't possibly uh, be, be really doing ministry. And so Paul addresses the issue here in the first six verses of chapter four, right? He, he's laying the groundwork for what true spirit enabled new covenant ministry should look like. And while he doesn't directly contrast his ministry with the ministry of other preachers in this passage, like he actually has done earlier in chapter two, we can kind of read between the lines and how he distances himself from them and explains how his ministry is different because that's what the church of Corinth is calling on Paul to give an account for. They're they're, they're telling Paul, Paul, this is what they're saying about you, and it's evident that there's a difference between your ministry and their ministries, so can you answer for this? And Paul says, absolutely I can answer for this. I'm going to give you what our ministry is marked by. He he really, what Paul does here is talks about the nature of his ministry and then two markings because of the nature of his ministry. He wants to show the difference between him and his opponents. And if you want one overall difference, one overall theme, the main difference between the two is actually found down in verse 5, if you'll let your eyes wander down there. The key to understanding the basis of Paul's ministry is in verse five where Paul writes, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. See, these other people only cared about their own image and they only cared about making a name for themselves. And Paul's saying, we don't preach ourselves. I'm not interested in making a name for myself. I'm interested in telling you about Jesus and making a name for Jesus. I'm not out here to advance my own career and advance my own agenda and advance my own ideals. No, my entire life is devoted to preaching Jesus as the Christ, as the Savior, as the Lord. Paul's saying, if there's anything that you're going to learn from me, if there's anything I want you to take away, it's that Jesus is the Savior and your Lord. It's all the the most important thing that I care about, Paul says. Not myself. And then he goes on to explain He says, actually, uh, I don't preach myself. I preach Jesus. We are in the background. We are your servants. We, We are serving you so that Jesus can take center stage. Paul's saying, I'm going to take the lowly position of the servant in humility for Jesus' sake. Now, having taken the posture of a humble servant in his flesh, it would have been very easy for Paul to play that comparison game, right? to, to compare himself to these other so called successful ministers. It would be easy for him to say, well, how do I stack up? How, how, how can I even compete with these other guys? I mean, look at how talented they are. And look at how many people come in week in and week out and hear them. Look at all the resources that they have. How can I even compete? Why should I even bother? That in and of itself can be a discouragement for somebody who's working in ministry, whether it be volunteer or vocationally, but even beyond the constant temptation of that comparison game that robs so much joy, gospel ministry by nature is a breeding ground for discouragement. C.H. Spurgeon puts it so well uh, in his book, in his lectures uh, to my students, is what the book is called. Uh, Spurgeon says, "Our our work, when earnestly undertaken, lays us open to attacks in the direction of depression. Who can bear the weight of souls without sometimes sinking to the dust?" Passionate longings after men's conversion, if not fully satisfied, consume the soul with anxiety and disappointment. To see the hopeful turn aside, the godly grow cold, and sinners waxing more bold in sin. Are not these sights enough to crush us to the earth? Spurgeon just nails it. For anybody who has ever been involved in ministry at any level, Spurgeon's words resonate. And if anyone would know what Spurgeon is talking about and even be justified in their discouragement, it would be Paul. Because he came under such wicked attacks and wicked accusations uh, in the church of Corinth. It's so hard for him probably not to take it personally. Yet in verse 1 he writes, we actually don't lose heart. Ministry is a breeding ground for discouragement, but Paul says we do not lose heart. We, do, we aren't weary. Right? In the face of so much potential discouragement, we don't lose enthusiasm. We don't lose steam. Why? Paul gives us the reason. Because we have this ministry by the mercy of God. Having this ministry by the mercy of God, we don't lose heart as a result. Paul attributes his lack of discouragement on the basis that his ministry is actually a mercy of God. When Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he was against Jesus. And he devoted his entire life at that point to persecuting Jesus and persecuting his followers. He was actually on his way to Damascus to arrest Christians at that moment when he met Jesus. So Paul was dead to rights at that moment. And Jesus had every prerogative to take care of Paul right then and there. But he didn't. He showed mercy. He showed mercy. And then in a weird, strange turn of events, God actually, Jesus actually calls him into ministry. He gave him mercy. And then he said, now, Paul, I'm going to send you. You're going to go out and you are going to share the gospel with the Gentiles of the world. And so Paul knows very well firsthand That the only reason he's in ministry in this particular role as an apostle is by the mercy of God. And isn't this true of all ministry? Isn't any ministry role by the mercy of God? That God would use weak, unqualified, fallen sinners to accomplish his purposes? Isn't that mercy? Let's not miss the profound ramifications of this, that we have a ministry by the mercy of God. See, in the secular world, I take on a job because an organization needs me, right? Their success is somewhat dependent on me. They need something from me. I have a certain skill set. I have a certain talent that meets the needs of a company, They need me to produce. They need me to succeed in my role. I was brought on to accomplish a task. And if I fail at that task, then I have let my employer down. I have hurt my employer, if you will. The employer takes a hit when I don't live up to my role that I have been hired to do. And sometimes this produces in us a great pressure and an anxiety and a discouragement, if you will. People lose heart because there's pressure. But this is not the case with God and his workings. Why? Because we have this ministry by the mercy of God. It's an act of mercy that you've arrived at a role in ministry in the first place. We don't receive a ministry calling because of any sort of personal merit, but on account of God's favor. See, there is no entitlement here. There is nothing earned here. There's nothing deserved. Just a pure act of God's mercy. And with that in mind, God is at liberty to choose whoever he wants, however he wants, whenever he wants. For crying out loud in the book of Numbers... If you go to Numbers 22, you'll come across one of the strangest stories in the entire Bible, I'm convinced, when God used a donkey to speak and do ministry. If God can use a donkey to speak to the pagan prophet Balaam, what does that say about anybody else in ministry? You see, with that in mind, one of the best things that we can do in our ministry involvement is to forget ourselves. If God can use a donkey, then I'm not all that great. Weekly, the preacher should remind himself that he is far more insignificant than uh, he or his people give credit for, because he is only in that spot because God is merciful to him. But here is the beauty of this. To see and understand our involvement in ministry as a mercy of God is actually quite a liberating concept. It's liberating and that the pressure is off. God doesn't need us like our employers need us. The kingdom of God does, and its success is not dependent on you. The Kingdom of God and its advancement is not on your shoulders. Several years ago, I jotted down a quote I, I for the life of me can 't remember where I read it um, or, or heard it for that matter, but it has stuck with me over the years uh, and, and has been very helpful. It says that God will never be handcuffed by your failures or unleashed by your successes to think anything else would be to think way more highly of yourself than you should. And to think anything else would be to think lower, way lower of God than you should ever dare. That's actually a very dangerous mindset to think otherwise. And so you sit here and say, well, if if that's the case, then why? Why do I even get involved with ministry? Well, we get involved with ministry because we're called. Because God asked us to be obedient and to go. Because God chooses to use us despite our sin and weaknesses. And we know the exact reason why he does this through Scripture is to, to bring glory to himself. Right? If you're familiar with catechisms, what, what, what is the, the, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. God, as the highest being, also has a chief end, and that is to glorify himself. And so, of course, he will use weak sinners to do his work so that the glory will be on him. If you're familiar with the story of Gideon and Judges, Gideon has a vast army, and God looks at the largeness of the army and he says, "Ah, oh, that's no good. Gideon, your army's too big because if you go into war and when you win that battle, you will claim credit for yourself and I'm not going to have that. And so he takes thousands of men and he puts Gideon through a process as a leader and brings the army down to 300 soldiers. And he says, now you're going to go in and win the battle and you're going to glorify me because of it. And so we have the honor of being called into ministry by mercy and participate in what God has in store for his kingdom. That's why we go. We are called into roles and positions and opportunities as a mercy. And this allows us really to work in faithfulness and obedience. And it allows Paul to say, no, I don't lose heart. I don't lose heart when the world tells me that I have failed to meet their standards and expectations because frankly, their standards and their expectations are misplaced. Paul is able to stare down his opponents in confidence and say, no, I'm not, I'm not discouraged by these bozos, right? These clowns up here in Barnum Circus because frankly, their ideas of what successful ministry looks like is wrong. Their ministry is merit-based. It's qualification-based. It's based on how great of a following they have. My ministry, Paul says, is mercy-based. So I don't have to live up to, to, to them and what they are. All I have to do is, is live up to what God has called me to do and asked me to do. Just be faithful and obedient. And then he continues on in the passage. Paul says, "Frankly, I have no desire." Because how they go about their work is wrong and it's unethical. Right? right? He, 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 he takes us into verse 2. And, and Paul shows us that because of the nature of his ministry, uh, that this actually marks his ministry. Right? Because Paul's ministry is based and founded on mercy, he goes on to explain with the rest of the passage that his ministry is marked by two things that we'll walk through briefly. His responsibility and our responsibility for that matter is to conduct ministry, one, in a manner of integrity, and two, in a manner of clarity. In a manner of integrity and in a manner of clarity. Let's take a look at both. In the first part of verse 2, Paul explains that his ministry is one of integrity, by speaking out against uh, three commonly implemented practices. First, Paul deliberately renounces disgraceful, underhanded ways. A literal translation here would say that that, uh, he has renounced the things that are hidden because of their shame. Right? There were people that would keep hidden certain practices. They would keep hidden certain ways of doing things because they were shameful. And they knew it was shameful, which is why they, they, they hid it deep into darkness. Right? If such practices weren't underhanded, if they were out in the open for all to see, they would have been found out, so to speak. Right? They, they, their true colors would have showed so they, Hide the shameful things away that they do. It's the first thing. Second, Paul Paul also refuses to practice cunning. Cunning. Another way to say this um, is that Paul does not walk in craftiness. He doesn't walk in craftiness. This word cunning, it's going to reappear uh, to us in Second Corinthians chapter 11 in verse 3, where Paul uses the word to associate it with the work of the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Paul writes that the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, by his craftiness. This is like a slyness. It's a it's a trickery that only seeks out the interests of yourself. Paul Paul refuses to practice cunning. He doesn't manipulate the situation to his advantage. This is what craftiness is. You you are you are fabricating something to help yourself, right? This is what Paul is saying. He won't do. He's not going to employ deception to get what he wants. How many times are we tempted to alter a story just a little bit so that we look better on the other side? Maybe we're not outright lying, but we just don't tell the whole truth of what happened so that we can look better. That's cunning. That's craftiness. It's a slyness, and Paul refuses to practice it unlike some others in his context. That's number two. And finally, third, Paul refuses to tamper with God's word. Once again, another word for tamper is to corrupt. He's not going to corrupt God's word, poison God's word. God's word is perfect just by itself. God's word is inerrant as originally given. It just as it is. You don't, you don't need to add to it. You don't need to take anything away. That's actually a command by God that shows up in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, not to add or take away from it. And the reason being is that God very much likes to speak for himself. He he doesn't want us uh, taking his words and molding them and tampering them and corrupting them. God says, "Just, just leave it be. Don't touch it. It's just fine how it is. I gave you my word, and I am perfect, therefore my word is perfect. And so you don't need to do anything to make it better. It's already the best that it can possibly be. And you don't need to take away. You don't need to soften it, because it's a message that everybody needs to hear. Just just, just leave it alone, and you'll be just fine. Now, unfortunately, this is a much more pervasive issue today than we might even imagine. Kent Hughes, in his commentary on 2 Corinthians, he shares four common ways people tamper with God's word without us maybe even realizing that we're doing it. And and I want to share these straight from his book so that we can be aware and alert where this comes to play, Uh, not just in our own personal study, but in ministries across the board, what we need to guard ourselves against. Uh, Once again, this comes straight from Kent Hughes' Um, people edit God's word, one, by just removing the text from its context. Right? You, you, you take it out of context, and then you can make it say whatever we like. That's number one. Number two, Ken Hughes says that we can actually moralize the text and reduce it to an ethical maxim that fits any religion. Do you know that there are other religions that consider this a holy book, that use this book? And they look at these passages and say, oh, that's just a, that's a moral axiom. That's, that can fit anywhere. They add to it, they take away from it, but we're reading the same thing. Right? Is our, is our morality based on the fact that Jesus has saved us from unrighteousness, that he has given us a new heart, and we desire to be better people, not because he requires it, but because it is a mercy or is it a grace? Or is our entire religion just built on being better people and here's some cute, pithy statements to follow? That is a way that people edit God's word. Uh, Number three, we tamper with God's word when we use the text to promote a hobby horse a hobby horse. It's just something that we're very passionate about. It's a certain issue maybe that we're passionate about. And then all of a sudden you find yourself, as you read, picking up on the things that support your hobby horse while leaving everything else off to the side. I hate to even use this as an illustration, but politics is a hobby horse that many people conveniently use Scripture to promote their political uh, agendas and thoughts, and whatever Scripture may possibly support the other side, they conveniently leave off to the side. Hobby horses. Number four, we tamper with God's Word um, when we are insistent that the text says something that it does not truly say, according to uh, Kent Hughes. And when we look at it and it's blatantly saying something else and we disagree. And there's even more than that. Those are only a handful. And unfortunately, like I mentioned, this is something that we can do by accident. We can tamper with God's word without even realizing that we're doing it. And so our response to that is let's not be lazy. Let's not be lazy and apathetic in our approach to scripture. We have to do the hard work of study more than just on Sunday mornings, but in our own personal time throughout the week, so as not to corrupt God's word. It's a bad thing to tamper with God's word, even if in ignorance, but it's even more shameful are the ones who knowingly tamper with God's word and use it for their own personal benefit. Paul says, I refuse to do that. Those are the things that mark Paul's ministry that show us that it is marked by integrity. He refuses to go about his business in some ways and his ministry in some ways is marked by integrity. He does not go about his ministry with, with shameful, cunning, uh, and hidden and manipulative tactics. Instead, as he finishes verse two, he says that we go by the open statement of truth. Or in other words, he sets forth the truth plainly. Unlike others, Paul has nothing to hide. The the word that he preaches is an open declaration. It's, It's a full disclosure. Paul's saying it's all there. It's all out on the table. I'm not hiding anything from you behind my back. There is no sleight of hand. This is it. Take it or leave it. Full disclosure. And with this, we see that Paul's ministry is marked by clarity. It's marked by clarity. And in those instances where it seems that there isn't clarity, where where the whole truth isn't seen, uh, Paul actually returns to the illustration of the veil that we looked at last week. Verse 3, Paul writes, even if our gospel is veiled, even if if there isn't clarity, almost as if to say uh, it's not veiled, but in the instances that it would appear that there's no clarity or sight, it's veiled To those who are perishing. When someone doesn't understand the simplicity of the forthright gospel, the truth plainly presented before them, Paul is saying it has more to do with the person on the receiving end of the message than it does with the message itself. The message is veiled not because the message is imperfect or the message falls short. No, it's not veiled because we're keeping something from you. Paul says it's veiled because you don't have the spirit that lifts the veil. This is why as believers, you you think about the message of Jesus and perhaps you've been walking with him for many years and you say, this is so simple. This is so easy to understand. So why don't my loved ones Get it. Why don't they understand? Why is it so hard for them? It's because they're veiled. And just because there is a veil doesn't make the message any less glorious. It actually speaks to the thickness, the callous that's built up on their hearts and their minds. Paul's point here is summarized well by John Calvin when he writes that the blindness of unbelievers in no way detracts from the clarity of the gospel. The sun is no less bright because blind men do not perceive its light. You see, this shows us where the rejection and the lack of clarity lies, the the rejection of the gospel, the lack of clarity is not merely due uh, primarily to a decision made against God. It's not a decision, but it's actually a condition. It's a condition of the heart. It's those who are perishing. They are not blinded because they reject the gospel. No, they reject the gospel Because they are blinded to its light. The cause and effect, once again, they are blind, cause, effect, they reject the gospel because they don't understand. And Paul says that there's a reason that they're blinded. They're blinded to the light because we have a great adversary in the God of this age. We have a great adversary in Satan who will do whatever he can to snuff out the gospel. He'll do whatever he can to snuff out the light of the gospel. And if you were around at Christmas time, when we walked through the first several verses of the book of John, we learned that the darkness could not overcome the light of the world. And so if Satan cannot snuff out the light, if he can't affect its glorious splendor, he's going to do the next best thing. He's going to blind people to their perception of it. He will manipulate their perception. Our enemy hates God and hates the light. And so he is constantly at work to keep as many people in darkness as possible. And what, according to Paul, is he intentionally blinding people to? Yes, he's blinding them to the light, but Paul gets specific. Once again, Paul's message in ministry is one of clarity. And so Paul makes it very clear what the light is. At the end of verse 4, Paul writes, Satan has intentionally blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan blinds people from seeing Jesus. And not just from seeing Jesus, but seeing Jesus for who he really is. Satan's number one priority is to keep people from seeing and knowing and loving Jesus. Certainly he wants you to be unholy and he wants you to be unrighteous and he wants you to be rebellious. Yes, he wants all of those things, but his number one priority, his main objective and ultimate desire is to shield Jesus from our sight. Why specifically Jesus? Why doesn't he primarily want you just to be a bad person? Why is it specifically Jesus that he cares about the most? Paul answers the question. Because Jesus is the image of God. Remember what I said earlier. Satan hates God, and he hates everything about God, and he hates God's will, and Jesus is the image of God. So naturally, Satan would do anything to keep Jesus from our gaze because he knows If we see Jesus, we will see God. Jesus is the image of God. What does it mean for Jesus to be the image of God? To be an image, it's a true representation. Oftentimes after services, my own son, Jacob, uh, at six years old, will come down, he'll, he'll embrace me, he'll give me a big old hug, and he'll stand by my side while many of you come up and talk, and, and there are many of you who look at him, and then they look back at me, and they say, my, what a spitting image your son is of you. He looks so much like you. Now, they're just talking about his physical appearance, but the resemblance doesn't just stop at the looks at the physical uh, appearance. No, he looks like me, and he talks like me, and he walks like me. He has the same humor as me. He even eats like me, which is really impressive for a six-year-old. Everything about him points to me as his father. He He is a small representation of who I am. And in a similar but even more so fashion, Jesus is the image of God. And he isn't just a partial image like my son is to me. He is a full image of God. To see Jesus is to see God. And to not see Jesus is to not see God. And he's the full representation of God because he is God. He is the embodiment of God. He is God in the flesh. And Jesus demonstrated this by going down to the grave in his death and then walking out three days later, overcoming death to show that he was really who he said he was, the son of God, the true man, God. And then here's the cool part. He appeared to hundreds of people. Why? To clearly show them the proof of his resurrection. And that right there is why Paul has a ministry of clarity and openness and forthrightness. Because this ministry is a mercy of God and God is a God of clarity. The entire story of the Bible is one of clarity, is one of revelation. Every single word jotted on the pages of this book ultimately points to God and who he is. He has given us his word as a grace to tell us who he is. And it most primarily uh, came about in the person of Jesus. There is nothing secret about Paul's ministry because there is nothing secret about what God uh, what God proclaims. There is nothing hidden about this message. There is no cunning deceit. There are no underhanded motives. There is no fine print. There is no sleight of hand. It is all out there on the table for all of us in this room to see. Take it or leave it. We're not withholding anything from you. There is nothing private about the good news of Jesus. No, God has fully revealed himself to us and has shown us in Jesus everything we need to come back into a restored relationship with him. It's all there. And the same God who said, let the light shine out of the darkness, Verse six, the God who took the chaos of darkness at the dawn of time itself and said, let there be light. And there was that same God who gave the earth its form in its order has also verse six shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He has taken the chaos of, in the darkness of my life and said, let there be light. And he gave it spiritual form. And when we recognize Jesus's face, when there is clarity, when we see him for who he truly is, when his face is finally separated out among the crowd of all the fake saviors in the world that we come across in our life. And Jesus alone stands as Christ and Jesus alone stands as Messiah and Savior and Lord. The light bulb clicks. The veil is lifted and suddenly everything in this world and in my life is made clear. I pray that that is the case for you today as you walk out of this room. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us clarity. Lord, there is so much of you that a mystery, Father, um, but you have revealed everything we need. You you have gone to great lengths and great pains to reveal yourself to us in the form of your son, Jesus, who came and stepped down out of heaven, not counting equality with you as something to be grasped. Father, he gave up the the privileges of what it means to be God, Lord, and, and stepped into human flesh, kept his divinity, but humbled himself to death, even death on a cross, so that we would know you and your name would be glorified. We praise you for this. And we lift up your name in glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.